Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, November 21st. There is no doubt that the biggest storyline coming out of the 2022 ATP Tour Finals is the fact that Novak Djokovic remains the king as Djokovic earns five consecutive victories throughout the course of the week. Straight set wins over Taylor Fritz and Kasparud this weekend to capture a sixth ATP Tour Finals title. Of course, you look for Novak Djokovic. That sixth title ties him with Roger Federer for the most wins in the event's history. Djokovic also becomes the oldest player to ever win the ATP Tour Finals. And simply put, what we saw over the course of the past week in Turin is a pretty good microcosm of what we saw from Novak Djokovic throughout the course of this 2022 season. Now, yes, his schedule was limited. Limited, but if you look at his record in ATP Tour action since the start of Wimbledon, Djokovic goes 25 and 1 down the season's home stretch. Wins titles at Wimbledon, Tel Aviv, Astana, the Tour Finals, obviously reaches the finals of the Paris Masters event as well. What more can you ask out of a player? at 35 years old. And certainly what I want to do here on today's show is not only reflect on Djokovic's 2022 season, but also talk about what made him so exceptional at these ATP Tour Finals. You could tell he was hurting at the start of his match against Kasparud. And yet it's the efficiency that Novak Djokovic plays with at this point of his career. It's not as though he's a better athlete than he was at age 24, 25, 26. He may even have lost, dare I say, a quarter of a step, but not only is the underlying physical talent still there, it's the way he goes about picking his spots, the way he goes about attacking his opponents, and he had to attack his opponents in such different ways throughout the course of his five victories this week. It's why he remains, in my opinion, the unequivocal best player in the world. It's why, in my opinion, he's also the unequivocal favorite heading into the 2023 Australian Open, an event it looks like he will now be able to play. And, you know, again, on today's show, I want to reflect on his run at the Tour Finals. But yeah, let's have some fun. It's late November. Should we speculate? He's at 21 slam titles right now with the form we saw from him at these Tour Finals. If he's able to play at least three out of the four slams, what do we expect that number to be for Djokovic next season? 22, 23, 24? Is he going to hold steady at 21? It's a conversation we can certainly have coming off of his results in Turin. But of course, Novak Djokovic was not the only storyline of the weekend. Is this Kasparud's peak? Is this the best season he can expect maybe to have in his career? I mean, think about it. Kasparud, two slam finals this year, reaches the tour finals final as well. Now, perhaps week in, week out, he could have more success in the future than he had this season. That said, you look for Kasparud, ultimately makes seven finals overall on the year. Now, didn't win a Masters or slam event, but finals in Miami and the tour finals, obviously finals at Roland Garros and the U.S. Open. It's a really, really good season for Kasparu to have at age 23. And again, is this the ceiling or the floor for Kasparu? That's something I think we should discuss here on today's show. And as I've alluded to on previous episodes of the mini break, that itself is going to be a solo December podcast topic as we reflect over the course of the next month on everything that's happened over the course of the past year. And that's right, folks. Time to get excited. Time to start gearing up already for that 2023 season. Did that sound disingenuous? It felt a little disingenuous, but no, I mean, again, it's almost time to turn the page. The 2023 season will be upon us before we know it. So time to do some reflection over the course of the next month. Want to do a little reflecting today on Kasparud. And look, I know our last mini break podcast was on Thursday. So there's a plethora of other ATP tour finals topics. I want to touch on briefly, whether it was the Tsitsipas press answer, brouhaha, Tsitsipas saying, you know, I thought 
I was the more creative player. I think I can hurt Rublev in more ways than he can hurt me. Rublev a bit limited in his weapons, but he executed them very well today. What do I make of that Pass press answer? I know I talked about it on Twitter, but perhaps some of you have gotten off Twitter or were never on it, whatever the case may be. Uh, I suppose I can get into that today, talk a little bit about the Rublev run, him making the semifinals. Does that put a completely different spin on what Andre Rublev accomplished this season. We'll get into it briefly. Obviously, Taylor Fritz, what a run for the American. I know we talked about it a lot last week, but still some final storylines, I suppose, to wrap up. I do also want to mention, obviously, happy early Thanksgiving to all of you listeners. I know that's on Thursday. A lot of you will be traveling over the course of the next week. That said, I'm still going to have podcasts for all of you listeners, and my plan over the next couple of days is to do some award shows. Let's put that final bow on the 2022 season, not only go into the real awards, but some of the fake awards we like to get creative with here at Cracked Rackets as well. It'll be the usual cast of characters, a fitting end to this 2022 season. David Kane, Gil Gross joining me for the WTA and ATP award shows respectively, so we'll put a final bow on this year on those podcasts, and I imagine... I mean, there's no way either of them is going to be shorter than an hour. I don't think we're going to hit two hours because I don't think Gil and David Kane are as lenient with me as, say, the GOAT Jonathan Kelly once was. And shout out to those of you who know the State of the Union American Tennis Podcast we used to do with Jonathan Kelly. I'm hoping to do an American Men's and Women's State of the Union podcast this week, TBD, on who the guest will be. But again, a lot of reflecting coming up over the course of the next week here on this show, over the course of the next five, six weeks as we get ready for, again, the tour calendar to turn the page, of course. we got to wrap up the ATP Tour Finals, and then i got to do one more rant on Ben Shelton. I mean, the youngest player ever to win three straight ATP Challenger titles, three consecutive weeks, 15 wins. It's indoor hardcore tennis. There's been a lot of it, but Ben Shelton made the top 100 on six months body of work. He has no points to defend until the start of June, and he's a top 100 player. He's getting into the Australian Open main draw. Probably getting into, I mean, if not qualies, you feel like there might be a wild card to one of Indian Wells or Miami. He's going to get into the Delray beaches of the world. Hopefully that ranking sustains, and I think it will sustain because, again, he has no points to defend if he wins even one, two matches. I'm going to get into the Ben Shelton rant already. So, you know what? We're going to put a pin in that. The point is Shelton wins the title in Champaign. Three-set win over former Illini All-American Alex Vukic. Want to talk about his performance over the course of the weekend look at his stats from the year one more time and then yes we can do some projecting where does Ben Shelton end the 2023 season in the rankings I think that's a really fun game to play with all of that said of course the reason we're able to do these podcasts day in day out is because of the support we get from all of you listeners and the support we get from our dear friends at Tennis Point maybe you want to do a little holiday shopping a little Black Friday shopping you know who's going to have great deals our dear friends at Tennis Point guess what You don't have to get up at the crack of dawn. You don't have to wait in long lines at the counter of these department stores. Do people still go to department stores? We'll put a Twitter poll out to see if that's actually still a thing on Black Friday. I feel like, and you know what? He's not going to listen to this, but mom, you're going to listen to this. And you're going to tell him about this, and he's going to get all salty, so maybe this joke stays between us. My dad brought home a printer for like 13 straight years on Black Friday. I swear to God. And mom, you can tweet it out and attest to it. I'll throw out the retweet. I swear to God, from like 2004 to 2017, there would always just be a new printer in the house in December. And it was like, oh, it was a Black Friday deal, whatever. It's like there's no human in the world who prints out this much Like, I'm just sorry, but it's not a thing. Anyways, Tennis Point doesn't offer printers, uh, but they do offer some of the latest and greatest products in the tennis world. And perhaps you need a new pair of shoes, strings, rackets, clothing, all these different things. Uh, they're all available at one location, tennis-point.com. You're not going to have to go wait in line. You can order it in the comfort of your home, wherever you are, on your phone, on your laptop. Use our promo code CR15 to let them know we sent you there. You'll get 15% off all sale items, free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Will 
Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. Tennis-Point, simple, not the spelling, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. By the way, I feel like some of you listeners may have stories. What's the Black Friday thing in your household that always seems to come up every time? You're coming home with a new remote control, a new Xbox game, whatever it may be. We want to hear it. Tweet at us, at Cracked Rackets. Uh, What you're doing for this Thanksgiving as well, how you'll enjoy your five-week sabbatical, dare I say, from the ATP and WTA tours. With that said, though, the sabbatical does not begin quite yet. We got to go over the 2022 ATP Tour Finals, and as I've alluded to already, the place to start that conversation is with Novak Djokovic. Simply put, the 35-year-old's best is still, in my opinion, better than the rest of the fields. And we certainly saw that on display as Djokovic earned straight-set victories over Tsitsipas, Rublev, Fritz, Rude, the three-set, three-hour marathon win over Daniil Medvedev as well to capture his sixth ATP Tour Finals. Now, I know we didn't do specific semifinal recaps, specific ATP Tour Final match recap yet, I do want to talk more broadly about the things I thought Novak Djokovic did well this season, why I think the things he has improved on in his game is why he remains, in my opinion, the best in the business. And it's just how efficient Novak has gotten on serve. And look, the post-U.S. Open stretch of tennis, excluding Laver Cup that Novak Djokovic played, I think all of it was indoor hardcourt tennis. But just listen to these numbers for Djokovic down the home stretch. Goes 18-1, and one, right, since the end of Laver Cup, winning a title in Tel Aviv, title in Astana, finals Paris, finals tour finals in Turin. Uh, excuse me, wins the tour finals in Turin. 18-1 and one over that stretch of time. Goes 9-1 and one in breakers. And you look for him this week, you know, the two-breaker win over Fritz in the semifinals, 6-6 six and six in that match, the third-set tiebreak win over Medvedev, third-set tiebreak win over Tsitsipas back in Paris. Djokovic has been the most clutch player in the biggest moments. And how is he able to, dare I say, manufacture that clutchness? It's with how reliable he's become on serve. Djokovic during this 18-1 stretch, making 66.9% of his first serves. For what it's worth, you look at the ATP Tour average this season, 66.9%, 3% better than your average top 50 player. So not only is he making more first serves than your average top 50 player, he's winning 82.7% of his first serve points. He won, excuse me. 82.7% of his first serve points down the home stretch of this season. That would rank number one on the ATP Tour for the year. The average player wins 73% of their first serve points. Djokovic, 82.7. He's 10% better than the average top 50 player. I mean, that, and again, so I, I tell you a number, not, you know, what was that number again? I don't want to get it incorrect. Uh, 92.6. How is the question you're probably asking yourself, or what does that, you know, 92.6%, uh, which was his hold percentage, excuse me, his 82.7% first serve win percentage, what does that look like manifesting itself on court? Well, against Taylor Fritz, against Stefano Tsitsipas, and in particular, in my opinion, against Daniil Medvedev throughout the course of their third set, the single play for me that is Djokovic's most lethal play now is on the deuce side. And it's his slice serve out wide on the deuce and then his first forehand to the open court because the precision with which Djokovic is carving the outside of the ball on that first serve and how much angle he opens up for himself. It wasn't, you know, he used the serve and volley against Medvedev the way Tsitsipas used the serve and volley the way just about everyone used the serve and volley against Medvedev as well. But his ability to get Fritz stretched so far outside of the court that he just has this runway of space to hit the first forehand with, and then all he really has to do is make the first volley if his opponent is even able to get a racket on that first forehand. It's just a lethal combination, and it's not as flashy as the Isner first serve. It's not as flashy as the Kyrgios first serve, but again, He's winning. He won 82.7% of his first serve points over his final 19 matches of the season. Yes, they were all on indoor hard courts, but five of the matches were, or excuse me, six, seven, eight of the matches came against top 10 players in the world. 
and he still is winning 82.7% of his first serve points. The slice out wide on the deuce, so effective. Obviously, against Kasparud, his ability to just play with depth through that Kasparud backhand corner, whether it was, but you know, the backhand cross-court rallies, obviously Djokovic won just about all of those, whether it was for Djokovic, you know, stretching Kasparud wide on the ad side, and then if Kasparud tried to cheat over, Djokovic would keep him honest, hitting the backhand down the line, hitting his on-the-run forehand with such great precision cross-court to the open space. You know, Djokovic just had Kasparud on a thread, and what was so fascinating about that match was that early on, you know, one-all, two-all, three-all, Djokovic looked a little banged up. He wasn't quite as fluid, quite as explosive with his first step when Kasparud was able to really get sting on his first forehand or, you know, the weight of the Kasparud shot pushing Novak Djokovic back. There wasn't quite the explosion for Djokovic to track down that second ball. And yet, again, for Novak Djokovic in the match, doesn't face a break point. Nine aces for him overall, winning three points for himself when he needs to most. He made 71% of his first serves, you know, dropped fewer than 15 points on serve in the match. Hour and a half, 7-5-6-3 victory. Against Taylor Fritz, yes, he was broken twice, but go watch the first set tiebreaker. Go watch the second serve, uh, second set breaker. You know, Djokovic, I think, missed three total first serves, or maybe it was four total first serves in each of those breakers combined. I mean, it was just how efficient he was in getting to his first strike, in being on his front foot. And then the same way he always has, when Novak has you on a string, there's not a shot from the baseline he can't hit. There's not a position on the baseline he can't be, uh, he isn't able to attack from. And then physically he held up. I mean, and you look for Novak here this season, played 49 overall matches in the end, 42 and seven. He won 86% of them. The body held up from start to finish this season, and it helped to have a nice sabbatical at the start of the year. You know, played one tournament before the start of April. That set, you know, didn't play any tournaments between the end of June and the start of September. And obviously that was because he couldn't come to North America for vaccination reasons, but I mean, again, when we saw Novak Djokovic on court this season, he was unequivocally the best player in the world. All of the stats suggest as much. The eye test suggests as much. You know, again, you look for Djokovic this season, looking according to the ATP stats leaderboard via our dear friends at Tennis Abstract. Djokovic, the best win percentage of any player on the ATP Tour this season. He won 85.7% of his matches. The 80% club, by the way, is Djokovic. Nadal, who at 39-8, and won 83% of his matches. And then Carlos Alcaraz, 57-13, and won 81.4. But again, Djokovic couldn't play Canada, Toronto, the U.S. Open, the Australian Open. He ends the season with the most top 20 wins. He has 19. Alcaraz has 18. Next closest players has 14. You look in terms of top 10 wins. Again, Djokovic, unable to play some of the biggest events on the calendar. He has 11 top 10 wins. No other player is in double digits. And then the piece de resistance, of course, you look at the top 10, 15, 20, 25 clubs. After the ATP Tour Finals, there is only one player who ranks top 10 in both hold and break percentage. Can you guess who that player is? I bet you can. It's Novak freaking Djokovic, who ends the year as the world number five. But again, you look for Djokovic this season. Where were the matches he lost that were significant? The Runa loss, he played that was the worst match he played probably of this post US Open stretch. And again, Runa beats him 7-5 in the third. A lot of unforced errors for Djokovic in that match. You look for him made uh won only 48.3% of his second serve points, and it did feel like a lot of those second serves were hanging up for Runa to attack. Runa was also on one that day, and you know, for Djokovic, I believe he had played three straight days, Musetti, and then the three-hour battle against Cici, or two-hour battle the day before against Cici Pass. Now Runa obviously played a ton of tennis as well. I'm not making an excuse. I'm just saying I don't think that was a bad loss for Novak Djokovic in his 42-7 and campaign. Felix 3-6 and at Laver Cup. We all just saw what Felix did in the indoor hard courts to end the season. That's not a bad loss. The Rafa loss, four sets, Roland Garros quarterfinals. 
after the second set, I thought Djokovic was winning the match. He served for the fourth set, obviously loses that match. And given the context of the opportunities he had, maybe some Djokovic fans will consider that a bad loss. But big picture, that is not a bad loss. 7-6 in the third to Alcaraz in Madrid. Again, given how little tennis he played the first four months of the year, I don't view that as a bad loss. 6-love in the third to Rublev in Belgrade. Fine, not great. 6-1 in the third to Davidovich, Fokina, and Monte Carlo. It was his first clay court match of the season, just his fourth match of the year. A bad loss, but not that bad. Yuri Veshley, 4-6 and six in Dubai. I will never call a loss to Yuri Veshley bad because that's our guy here at Cracked Rackets. Shout out to the former world junior number one. But yeah, that's not a great loss. The point is, he still ended up with more top 10 wins than anyone else on the season this year. And you look for Djokovic, a 11-3 record. He lost his first two matches against top 10 opponents. Then his only other top 10 loss this year came to Rafa in the Roland Garros quarterfinals. Come on now. I mean, he dropped one set on his way to the Tour Finals title over the past week. And given he didn't look great in Paris, and given the fact that he was pushed so physically in that third-round robin match against Daniil Medvedev, a match that so many people were asking afterwards, why didn't he just pull out? What are the rules there? Um, and by so many people, I mean fans, not Novak Djokovic himself, who I believe on court said, I wanted to keep playing, um, or but also was curious what the rule was. He wins that match, and then he beats Fritz, and then he goes unbroken against Kasparut. And look, with all due respect, you you know, meaning the listeners, know my fondness for veering against the pathway and trying to find the take that other people aren't sharing with you and trying to just inject some sort of creativity into the coverage of how the ATP, uh, into coverage of the ATP and WTA tours. But with all due respect to the rest of the field, Iga's your favorite on the women's side entering Australia, unless for some reason it's like actually Ashley Barty's been training for the past five months and she wants to get back into it. Then Iga's still the favorite, but, you know, you're interested. You'll take a flyer on Barty. That's not happening, by the way. That's just me making a bad joke. Iga's your unequivocal favorite in Australia. Djokovic is your unequivocal favorite if he's able to play as well in Australia. There's just, I don't know, I can't believe I blanked on Australia there, but he is unequivocally your favorite entering the 2022 Australian Open. I mean, again, you look for Novak Djokovic. How many tournaments did he play this season? Novak Djokovic in total, first round matches. Um, he played 10 first round matches, so 10 total events this season. He made seven finals and he won five titles. I mean, again, I, I've gone over these stats historically, but the best seasons of all time, the prime Federers, prime Nadals, prime Djokovic's, what separate them from even the Sampras, you know, Agassi, McEnroe tier of players is in their best years, they're making the finals in over 50% of the tournaments they play. And they're also usually winning titles in over 50% of the tournaments they play. And that's what Novak Djokovic did this season. He played 10 match, you know, 10 first round matches, made 7 finals, and he won 5 titles. That's elite. I mean, you look at the stats for Djokovic this season. I mentioned he's the only player to rank top 10 in both hold and break percentage. His 86% win percentage. Um, by the way, it's his, let's see, uh, 11th consecutive season, over 80% wins. It's 3.5% above his career average. You look at his hold percentage, 88.1. That's 2.1% above his career average. Now, the break percentage dipped to 27% this year. Still top 10 number on the ATP Tour. And... You know, again, that, in my opinion, is due to the lack of outdoor clay court or outdoor hard court matches that he played early in the season, which I think would have boosted his numbers. Djokovic is still the guy. The numbers say it. The eye test says it. And as you look, again, he's the favorite going into Australia. He'll have a month and a half to rest his legs again. And obviously, Australia has been the slam where he's had his most success. If he plays, you, you probably... I mean, he's, again, the unequivocal favorite. So that would be 20. He wins that. That's 22. Rafa's the favorite at Roland Garros until he loses two years in a row. That's always been the rule here at Cracked Rackets. But Djokovic beat him two years ago. Played him extraordinarily tight last season. Certainly coming out of 2022 with Rafa looking as unhealthy as he was. Djokovic still looking fresh to end the season. It's not a gimme for Rafa Nadal, right? You feel like that's to use political terms. You lean Rafa, but it's it's still in the toss-up category. But, you know, Cook Political Report would have it 
in the Republican category. I don't know why I said in the Republican category, maybe the Democrat category. Which one are we going to put Rafa? Which camp is he going to be in? I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do is Rafa a Republican or a Democrat. I'll leave that to you, the listeners, to decide. Uh, But again, if it was a Cook Politico rating, it would be in the toss-up category, but it would be ever so slightly toss-up but projected Rafa victory. Um, Yeah, a minute and a half to get through that joke. Leave it in. Put it in the blooper reel for 2022 West off. Um, Yeah, Djokovic is the guy, and certainly he's the favorite at Wimbledon. I mean, we don't know if there will be Russian players, and I know Berrettini's had a really good grass court run over the past couple of years. I know Chilich would have been a top five contender had he not gotten COVID right before the tournament started, but Djokovic cruised to the Wimbledon title, and given the lack of grass court success of just about every one of these young next-gen or next-gen 2.0 players, he's unequivocally the favorite entering Wimbledon, and, you know, again, that would be 23. That would, at worst, let's say Rafa wins the French Open, at worst, Rafa could win Australia. He won it this year, but if you are a gambling man, you, I, I think, again, Cook Politico. I don't even think this would be toss-up. I think this would be lean Djokovic in terms of who's going to have the most slams coming out of 2023. I think Djokovic is very well positioned to win two more. Now, again, Carlos is coming. Sinner gets better every day. There's starting to be some desperation maybe if you're a Zverev, a Tsitsipas, certainly as you don't want the young guys to surpass you. Obviously, Berrettini of the world, uh, who makes the quarterfinals of just about every slam that he plays. We talk about how Tier 2 is so jam-packed right now on the ATP Tour. You know, right now, Tier 1, and I know usually I don't include Novak Djokovic, but he is the true definition of Tier 1. He's on a tier of his own, you know, with all due respect. I mean, Rafa's on that Tier 2 by respect, but as good as Alcaraz is, are any of us taking Alcaraz over Djokovic, best of five on a hard court right now? I think if you put that Twitter poll out there, some people would try to be snarky, but I think everyone would pick Novak Djokovic. Anyways, I'm repeating myself. The point is, Djokovic, your ATP Tour Finals champion, oldest winner of the event in history and most event uh, title in the event's history now tied with Roger Federer, I should say, with those six ATP Tour Finals titles. That said, again, Djokovic wasn't your only storyline of the event. Let's kind of rapid fire through the rest of them now. Certainly, if you're Kasparud after the disappointing run following the U.S. Open final, and I mentioned this before, going into the tour finals between, you know, uh, at post Labor Cup start of the tour finals, Kasparud played six total matches, uh, was two and four overall in those six matches. Losses to Nishioka, Munar, Wawrinka, and Musetti. Yes, he lost to Rafa, 5-5, five and five, but of course, structurally, as we explored on that day's podcast, that's just always going to be a nightmare matchup because what Rafa does so well is exactly what Kasparud's, I don't want to say vulnerability, but the window to attack Kasparud is by doing what Rafa does so exceptionally well. That said, for Rude to follow that win up with a 2-4 and four win over Andre Rublev, a match where Rude faces just one break point, but... I mean, from a numbers perspective, when makes 76% of his first serve, won 77% of his first serve points, 73% of his second serve points. He just that the action on Kasparud's ball, it disrupted all of the rhythm for Andre Rublev and the heaviness of that forehand cross. Just Rublev wasn't able to step into it as comfortably as he typically is. And, you know, again, for Kasparud, the verticality is the wrong word, but the the angles that he plays with, I, I'm looking for a verticality from the NBA equivalent. I can't think of it at this moment, but his ability to stretch the court laterally. He just had Andre Rublev outside or, you know, in the alley or outside of the court. And from those positions, yes, Rublev can pull the trigger and try to beat you down the line to the spot or try to go for the rip, but it's a really inefficient shot. And more often than not, you felt like Andre Rublev had to start pressing down the home stretch of the match. And, you know, that's when the frustrations start to grow for Rublev because the errors begin to pile up. And again, Kasparov just so efficient, the mortal version of Rafael Nadal. 
was so successful with his first serve and, you know, first strike combination. You look for Kasparut, he ends the season with an 86% hold percentage. That 86% number uh, has Kasparut. Interesting. Lower than, oh, that's because it's by first serve win percentage right now. It's like there's no way Kasparud is that low. And it turns out Kasparud is indeed where I expected him to be. Tenth in hold percentage on the ATP Tour this season. And it's a fascinating list. Kyrios Isner, Opelka, you'd expect them all to be in there. Hercots, sure. Checks out, he's 6'6". Cressy, same deal. Berrettini, same deal. Djokovic, same deal. Medvedev, same deal. Tsitsipas, FAA. These are all names you'd expect to be in there. I think Kasparud's probably the first surprise, or maybe not surprise, but you say, oh, Kasparud, he's 10th, really? And it's because, A, sneaky pop, sneaky action. I love his slider out wide on the deuce. I love his ability to play both the kick, the flat tee, and then into your body flat with pace as well on the ad side. And then again, if he has a, a look at a first forehand, he's just going wherever you are not. If he has a big enough lane, he'll take it to the open space. If you cheat over, he's so successful at hitting the ball behind you. And because how quickly that ball springs on you now, your momentum's just all over the place and he continues to pounce. I think his backhand line is getting better, though Casper himself even expressed as good as I was this season after the match, he talked about how there are still a number of things he looks at in his game that he can improve on. Certainly the backhand return, seeding so much ground on the return of serve. He just gave Novak too much space to work with when he ends up going six, seven feet behind the baseline to try and ensure himself a clean rip. You just can't do that against the best of the best servers on the quicker surfaces. That said, you know, Kasparud 51 and 22 this season. Two slam finals, Miami final, ATP tour finals. The big number for me, Casper 25 and 7 on clay courts wins 78% of his matches. He also went 25 and 13 on hard courts. And you look at what, you know, contextualize that hard court success, Miami final, semifinals in Canada, finals of the US Open, finals of the tour finals. You know, make semifinals or further at four of the biggest hard court events on the calendar. So he and obviously also makes the French Open final last uh, this year. Won three straight clay court events, albeit at the 250 level last season. He's a top ten guy on two of the three surfaces. The two and the two most important of the three surfaces because grass court season tennis is really just a one month season. Man, again. You look on paper, 70% win percentage, his break percentage dipping below the tour average, uh, top 50 average of 22.5 to 22%. You feel like that's low-hanging fruit for him to continue to improve. That said, I think Kasparud could become better as a player and still not be able to replicate this 2022 season where, of course, he reached number two in the world and made two slam finals. I just... I don't know if anyone but Djokovic, you just feel like you can pencil into two slam finals next year because, yeah, Alcaraz, obviously you feel really good about, but what if the center breakthrough does happen? What if Zverev comes back healthy and is right back in the mix? What if Tsitsipas or, again, I haven't even said the name, Rafa or Djokovic, you know, they're Medvedev, all still in the mix it, it was really impressive for Casper to sneak out two slam finals this year and certainly to beat Berrettini in the U.S. Open quarterfinals, take advantage of the Hatchinoff semifinal matchup and get through that in four sets. You know, you look for him, though, didn't face the top 10 seed at the U.S. Open this year. You look for him at the French Open. Really good wins over Hercots, Chilich, Runa, but didn't face a top 10 seed till the final in Rafa. I mean, again, I'm not trying to detract from anything Kasparu did. There were opportunities that emerged in a handful of draws this season, and Kasper was there to capitalize on all of them. You look for Kasparu here this season against top 20 opponents, Kasper 9-6 and six overall uh, on hard courts, 14-9 overall for the season. Against the top 10 this year, Kasper went 5-6. and six. Three of his wins came at the Tour Finals, so he was, what, 2-4 and four against top 10 opponents prior to that with his wins over FAA in Canada and a win over Zverev in three sets in Miami. I don't know. I mean, again, I if you're calling someone the mortal version of Rafa, I think I'm pretty clear that I'm high on Casper's upside, but is he Tier 2 or Tier 1? I would lean more Tier 2. Because as good as his first serve, first forehand combinations are, are either of that, well, they are elite. 
but are either of them non-negotiable weapons, overwhelming weapons that regardless of what his opponents do, they're not going to be able to take that away from him. I go back and forth on this so frequently. On a clay court, certainly. On a hard court with the length of a Medvedev, the length of a Zverev. I mean, I know he just beat FAA Fritz and Rublev at these two or finals, but I'm, I just don't know if he's if he's tier one. Uh, he's tier one on clay. Is he tier one on hard courts? If he is, then he has to be a tier one player. Again, that's really the crux of the debate. Certainly, you look at his results this season, it's hard to suggest otherwise, but I think I'm still going to have him in tier two as we head towards 2023. With that said, again, that wasn't particularly rapid, but some rapid fire ATP finals takeaways. What a win for Andre Rublev. And you look at Rublev's season now, 51 and 20 overall on the year was Rublev, finishes the year uh, at number eight in the live rankings. Now, of course, that's three off his career high of number five, but he's just in the mix. And you look for Rublev, he won 71.8% of his matches, third straight year for him, over 70%. He was one of just 10 players to rank top 25 in both hold and break percentage here this season. Of course, you look for Andre Rublev as well, was top five in quarterfinals, making 12 quarterfinals here on the year. He made 10 semifinals and of course went 4-0 in the four finals that he reached. Now, again, you look for Rublev, he played 22 events, I believe, here this season. You make the quarterfinal in 12 of them. It's not an elite of the elite season, but if you make the quarterfinals in over half of your events and you're a top 50 guy playing tour-level events, that's how Andre Rublev puts it together, another top 10 season. And that's three in a row where Andre Rublev has been four in a row, dare I say, if you want to include 2020, um, where Andre Rublev has been an unequivocal top 10 guy. And you know, again, for Rublev, who still is looking to reach that semifinal, final stage of a Grand Slam, you know, you look for Andre Rublev, 2019 season, very, very close to reaching the ATP Tour Finals and ends the year winning a title in Moscow and, you know, making the round of 16 at the U.S. Open, but then Tour Finals 2020, Tour Finals 2021, Tour Finals 2022. I mean, again, you make the Tour Finals three straight times, before your age, you know, he turned 25 this year, you feel like he's now, okay, the prime of his career is these next four years. And he's already made the tour finals three straight years. The question is, has Andre Rublev hit his ceiling? And, you know, he is a top 25 club guy, but he's not top 10 nor top 15 in either hold percentage or break percentage. He's good at a lot of things. Is he exceptional at anything? Obviously, his serve and forehand are overwhelming, but that gets back to, you know, Andre Rublev, or the the Tsitsipas comments about Andre Rublev, where Tsitsipas says, you know, I think I, I I think I am the more creative player, and what he's insinuating is I can hurt Andre Rublev in more ways than Rublev can hurt me. I know it was harshly worded. I know it was salty for him to say, certainly after he lost that match to Rublev. But aren't we always screaming for honest assessments from players about their opponents, what they saw in the match, what they were thinking in their head? And again, analytically, Tsitsipas's ability to hit the big first serve, hit the forehand approach in so many different ways, his comfort level coming forward behind that approach, behind his serve, and you know, again, just taking time away from you, isn't that to use Tsitsipas's word, more creative in how he attacks Rublev than Rublev, who's obviously trying to bash you with the forehand, overwhelm you with his pace. Yes, he'll move that forehand around inside out, inside out, inside in, but you know what you're going to get from Andre Rublev, the relentlessness from the baseline. I don't disagree with the merits of Tsitsipas's statement. And to David Kane's point, who corrected me on Twitter, you know, some people were openly, you know, you're his point is, yes, Tsitsipas has the right to say these things, but we has, as fans also have a right to mock him for saying him. Yes, that's true. And I'm not saying you shouldn't mock players when they say something stupid. God knows that's half the fun we have here at Cracked Rackets. At the same time, you can make fun of someone while also acknowledging they may be correct. Like, I, I don't think Tsitsipas was wrong in what he said. Now, it may have been the wrong time perception-wise for him to say, but I disagree. Like, have you ever been in a car with someone after a match where you're talking honestly about the match? And I, if you have ever been in that scenario, I guarantee you, whether you're talking to your parent, whether you're talking to your coach, whether you're talking to your peer who you were playing the match alongside of, whatever it was, at some point in that conversation, you'd be like, oh, 
man, I, I do think I was better than that guy. Or if I would have done this, or if I could have done that, I think I was doing these things correctly. And I just, I ran out of time or I didn't execute quite well enough. Like again, everyone's going to have those thoughts. And I think Tsitsipas verbalizing them, it just makes him human. Like, and that's what we ask for. We ask for candidness. We ask for what is actually going through your head right now. And again, you are allowed to mock a player when they say something stupid. I agree. I just think you should also acknowledge, like, he wasn't wrong in his assessment. I have no problem with his statement, I guess I'm saying. I also, though, I suppose have no problem with the mockery. I do think, though, when people are questioning his attitude and, like, oh, this means he's disrespecting Rublev, that's not what he meant by the sentiment. It wasn't—he wasn't disrespecting Andre Rublev, the person— he was deflecting anger at his disappointment in his game because he believes his ceiling – it's a reflection of his confidence. He believes his ceiling is higher than Rublev's in that match in, match out. He should be able to get the better of Andre. And again, Rublev in that match, very impressive. Come from behind, 3-6-6, 3-6-2 win, was only broken once in the match, was so relentless with the first serve, first strike to the Tsitsipas backhand and just pulverizing anything Tsitsipas left short. Um, it was really good focus from Rublev to turn things around in sets two and three. And again, you look for Andre Rublev now to win four titles, to you know make double digits quarterfinals, double digits semifinals. You look for him in terms of top ten victories here this season. Rublev five and five overall against the top ten. Now eight and nine against the top twenty. Not great, but pretty solid. And again, it cemented himself as a tier two guy heading into next year where you just know all the big events, Andre Rublev is certainly going to be in the mix. That said, I think we did enough on Fritz, obviously him to make the tour finals. This is the best season of his career, unequivocally, 45 and 21 overall, one of just five players to rank top 15 in uh, 20, excuse me, in both hold and break percentage to end the year. Really, really good year for Taylor Fritz and six and six against Novak Djokovic, like you break joke you're the only guy to break Djokovic multiple times throughout the course of the match um or excuse me not yeah no you are the only guy to break Djokovic multiple times throughout the course of the match and you win 76% of your first serves and you know you go unbroken against Rafa unbroken against Felix and 7-6 in the third against Kasparud where he you know had opportunities to extend that match uh, we talked about that match ex- already if you're Taylor Fritz, how you know? A, thank God he had a Netflix crew following him for this season, so we'll always have documentation that it was real. But B, you're feeling like your the question is not Taylor Fritz's tennis. Again, the question is, can he become a better volleyer because he always creates the opportunities for himself? And then again, how much better can he continue to get physically? Because every half step or quarter step he adds of fluidity in the outer thirds, he just becomes that much more dangerous. And yeah. I don't know if I'm ready to definitively move him into tier two, but certainly he is a uh, you know no lower than tier three and just a guy who is going to be in the mix over the course of the next decade. The flip side, the only guy who I think leaves Turin disappointed because Rafa went one and two, but given his form, given how little tennis he had played since the U.S. Open, just getting a win at all was a victory for Rafa. And getting through three matches healthily was the big win. Felix losing in three sets, obviously in the clincher to Fritz, is disappointing, but in the context of his postseason success, not a disappointment at all. And then, obviously, for Tsitsipas to lose in three sets to Rublev, yeah, a little bit disappointing, but Tsitsipas had countless chances. I don't think he played bad throughout the course of his time in Turin. The only guy who I think leaves disappointed is Daniil Medvedev. As you look for Medvedev, 18-9 and during this Second hardcore stretch of the 2022 season. Wins the title in Los Cabos. Wins the title in Vienna. And a lot of shoulder shrugging in some of the results in between. Now, again, there's not really a bad loss. Three sets. He loses 7-6 in the third to Tsitsipas. 7-6 in the third to Rublev. 7-6 in the third to Djokovic. Loses 7-5 in the third to Demonauer in Paris. You know, has to retire after splitting sets with Djokovic and Nur-Sultan. 6-3 in the third to Stan. 6-2 in the fourth at the U.S. Open to Kyrgios. 6-3 in the third to Tsitsipas at Cincinnati. 6-2 in the third to Kyrgios in Canada. There's not a single blowout loss. There's not a single, no. you know, Daniil Medvedev did not show up. He just pooped his pants on this given day. He wasn't there. There's none of those results for Medvedev on his end-of-season calendar. That said, you look for Medvedev. 
you know, the 28% break percentage is a top 10 number uh, if sustained throughout the course of a season. But Medvedev's break percentage, 25.9% this year. That's a significant dip for Daniil Medvedev, who last year was at 31.4%, was a top three guy and was over 27% the previous two seasons. And that gets back to what we saw in all three of his matches, Tsitsipas, Djokovic, Rublev. If he's going to seed 12 feet of ground, to get a clean swing on the forehand return, to get a clean swing on the backhand return. Again, that'll work against lesser players, but the best of the best are going to take advantage of the space that's provided, whether it be with the serve and volley, whether it be taking the first strike early on the rise, following it in, forcing Medvedev to have to come up with the spectacular. You know, the top players know what to do now. They understand the necessity of going for their shots because if you don't, you're going to lose to him in the physical battle, so at least might as well go down swinging you know, again, you look for Daniil Medvedev, you can't say it's a bad year for a guy who actually reached world number one earlier this season, but ends the year ranked number seven overall, which is the lowest he'll end, I think, in a couple of seasons. You know, for Medvedev, still won over 70% of his matches, is still one of just two players to rank top 15 in both hold and break percentage this season. It's him and Djokovic. You know, Joe, uh, he ultimately makes five finals here this year, wins his final two finals in Los Campos and Vienna, but... No significant, you know, no Masters 1000 titles, no major titles. I guess that's a tough litmus test for him to have to pass, uh, you know, bar for him to clear. I think it was a disappointing season, maybe emblematic in this of this tour finals where he loses 7-6 in the third in three consecutive matches. Talk about bad beats for Daniil Medvedev. That's tough. I mean, certainly we'll see more of Medvedev moving forward. But again, that's obviously a tough ending to the season for the 26-year-old who will be looking forward to that clean slate, although has serious points to defend right away at that 2023 Australian Open. All of that said, that's your look at the final weekend of the ATP Tour season. Novak Djokovic, still the king. Of course, who might be coming for his throne? Well, maybe not immediately. But if you haven't bought some Ben Shelton stock... I mean, you missed the Apple surge, and we've been giving it to you here at Crack Rackets for the past 18 months. Of course, Shelton, it was honestly, what, 16, 17 months ago, he's playing number five singles as a freshman for the University of Florida, clinches the team national title for them. He then goes on to win a Futures title in Champaign, make the final of the boys Kalamazoo, boys 18 singles, losing to Zach Svida, who he now significantly outranks. And, you know, then he wins the ITA All-American. He's the guy in college tennis for the Gators this season, capturing the college tennis singles, NCAA singles championship And that success immediately translated here in his Pro Tour run. You look for Ben Shelton, ends the 2022 season a ridiculous 40-11 overall in the matches that he played. None of them lower than the challenger level and the big stats for Ben Shelton. Yes, he's only 3-2 against top 100 players this season, but 8-0 in eight challenger quarterfinals. He made eight challenger quarterfinals. I believe that's a top 15 number on the ATP challenger tour. And he did it in half a season. Eight and no in challenger quarterfinals. Six challenger finals on the year. Three challenger titles to end the season, of course. Goes three sets against Kovacevic, which has been one of the most fun challenger rivalries we've seen over the past year. And then a three-set Love 6, 6-3, 6-2 win over another Illini All-American, Alex Vukic, in the final. I mean, you look for Ben Shelton again. 40-11. and 11. He won 78% of his matches here this year, holding serve 87.8% of the time. Amongst top 50 players, that would be a top 10 number. Now, of course, you have to adjust for level of competition, but 87.8% hold percentage, pretty damn good. And then the 22.3 break percentage, you feel like the return of serve, he takes big cuts at the forehand at times, but foundationally, You like the principles. You like his ability to make clean contact on that backhand return every time and how condensed it is. You know, the average of a top 50 player was 22.5% this season. Shelton's at 22.3. Again, you'd have to adjust for level of competition and against top 100 opponents, that break percentage dips to 14.8%. I'm not saying the big cuts on the forehand, the big backswing won't be an issue at times against elite of the elite competition on the ATP Tour, but... You hold 87.8% of the time playing an entirely challenger-level schedule. 
that's elite serving. And as we saw against Kasparud in Cincinnati, and again, against Eubanks, Kovacevic, Vukic, all these guys throughout the home stretch of this year, that lefty slider out wide on the ad side, you're just in trouble. He can hit every spot on the serve. He's comfortable as a volleyer. You know, how fast is he? Is one step faster than you. All the tools are there. And you just, again, the youngest player to win three consecutive challengers in ATP Challenger history. You know my thoughts. When you're the youngest to do anything, think of the Felixes, the Djokovic's, Gasquets, Nadal's, Del Potro's of the world. Now, the difference of Alcaraz's, now, the difference obviously is Shelton's 20, not 15, 16, 17, like those guys were. But if you know Ben Shelton's story, didn't really get into tennis full-time till he was 14, 15 years old, and, you know, immediately, obviously, with his former top 100 professional father, Brian Shelton, who, here's a hot take for you, this will be Brian Shelton's last year coaching the Florida men's tennis team. I think he's going to coach Ben full-time to start 2024. Um, That's because how could you not have fun traveling around the world with your son as he's a a blossoming pro tennis player? Um, That said, you know, again, you look for Ben he obviously is now extraordinarily committed to this sport, how, the, how quickly and rapidly his game has improved, how he has the size, he has the physicality, the fluidity, the weapons, the mentality. The guy's a winner, and he plays every match like he's still in Gainesville, pumping himself up with you know the, the loud commands, the fist pumps. All the stock. I'm all in on Ben Shelton. And obviously winning three straight challengers, 14-11 overall in the year, eight challenger quarterfinals. In six months of tennis, he cracked the top 100. He's up to number 97 on the ATP Tour and does not have a point to defend till May 31st. I mean, come on. Does not have a point to defend through the first five months of the season. Gets into the Australian Open main draw. Well, very likely, you know, now the wild card will go to Chris Eubanks, who will very happily accept it and is also very, you know, has like four wins to defend till April. I mean, man. And shout out to Chris Eubanks, late nominee for Tweet of the Year. He says, dinner's on me in Australia to Ben. Damn right it is. I mean, it's just the perfect series of events, a series of fortunate, not unfortunate events. If you're a fan of American men's tennis, a fan of two of the best guys out there in Ben Shelton and Chris Eubanks, just two outstanding people. And again, go watch Ben play. The serve, the forehand, the aggressive mentality, the explosiveness, it belongs in the top 100. And I cannot wait to see him unleashed on the rest of the ATP tour. With that said, that'll do it for much of our coverage of the 2022 tennis season. And by that, I mean, not sure how much event by event breakdown we'll be doing the rest of the year. I know Davis Cup is still on the schedule and certainly there are futures events, challenger events happening in other parts of uh, the wor- uh, other parts of the world other than he- here in the United States. But even then, there are futures events happening here in the United States. That said, again, coming up, a lot of reflection, a lot of previewing of next year. We'll get into the college tennis season. Who might the next Ben Shelton in the men's and women's games be? We've got plenty of content coming up over the course of the next month for you here at Cracked Rackets. So be sure to stick around, folks, as we promise to keep you the most well-informed, best-educated tennis fans in the business. Of course, a shout-out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the f- of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of our content possible. Shout-out as well. To our dear friends at Tennis Point, remember, it's tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With that said, for our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, and from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break. We'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>